This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. been around the last few weeks we've had a two-week break from our series the last two weeks we've been looking at the Reformation um, today we're going to go be going back to the Jesus's series we've been looking at so we've been looking at the the seven statements from Jesus in the Gospel of John which he says I am and then says something after that so today we're looking at I am the way the truth and the life uh, we're going to be reading from John chapter 13 just a quick refresh for those of you, well, either refresh if you were around or for those who weren't around. Um, it's worth noting that all these I am statements, it wasn't an accident that Jesus started these statements off with I am. I am is a name for God. He, he called himself I am who I am in the Old Testament when he spoke to Moses. So when Jesus made these statements, they were profound statements and he was, the people listening would have understood when he said I am the way and the truth and the life, he was saying I am God who is the way and the truth and the life. So we need to understand that. We want to make that really clear. That's not a surprise. Howard mentioned it before. So just wanted to remind you of that. The context of where we're coming into John chapter 13 is it's the night before Jesus is about to be uh, put on the cross and killed. He's with his disciples, his closest buddies, um, and they're in this room and they're having, uh, they've had a meal together. And... He's just revealed that one of them is about to betray him. And he, he, he shows them all it's Judas, except most of the disciples don't really pick up on what he's saying. So G, Judas has just left the room. And then this is where we come in, in John 13, and we're going to start from uh, 31. And Emily is going to read for me. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. 
From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Okay, so if, um, if you're familiar with kind of the stuff that Jesus has said over his lifetime, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus is no stranger to controversial statements. He will say things that will anger his audience or completely pull them in because they think, oh, this is amazing. So this, what Jesus is saying here, not only did he say, I am, which the religious rulers of the time would have been furious at thinking, what is, he is making a bold statement here, but he is saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's three words in that sentence which he could have changed, um, which would have dramatically changed the meaning. And I'm not talking about the way, truth, and life. I'm, I'm talking about the words the. If he had said, um, I am a way, a truth, a life, then suddenly the whole meaning of that would have changed. And actually, that would have been a lot more acceptable to us. We, we, we're quite happy with someone saying, yeah, you're, you're right having a way, a truth, a life. That's fine. That's all good. Or if he had changed the I am to I know, so he said, I know the way, I know the truth, I know the life, then actually, again, that would have been a very different statement he was making. He would have said, actually, I could teach you the way, I could teach you the truth, and I could teach you the life. But actually, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. This was massively controversial then. And actually, what we're going to consider some cultural stuff now, to, and what we realise is actually, it's a massive controversial statement for our day and age as well. So, general, before we go into the, uh, the uh, specifics of culturally um, how do we feel about the way, the truth, and the life, the general observation of where our culture is right now, and maybe this isn't, isn't anything new, maybe it's from every, every generation, but I think it's particularly paramount for now, is we live in, in, in the cultural Western modern world, it's a very individualistic culture. We don't necessarily talk about we, but we often talk about I, me, what, what's good for me. We kind of see this, the lens of the world that we look through is me, myself, and I. And that's how we view everything. That's, that's just where we are at a culture. You might, you might disagree, but that's, that's my observation. So, so we're going through life and we think, how does this affect me? What's best for me? How can I make my life better? And even where we say, actually, no, but it's not always about me. It's sometimes about my, my wife, sometimes about my kids, sometimes it's about my friends. Actually, so often, even through that lens, we're thinking, actually, if the people are close to me are good, then that's good for me. And so that is where we're at. And so we need, so that's just helpful to understand kind of culturally where we're at. So culturally, the way, when Jesus says he is the way, what do we understand? So Jesus' statement of being the way, this jars us because our cultural belief is we choose our own way in life. We don't like to be told we're wrong, do we? We don't. So, if I was to say to you, name a song which, which has the word way in it, what's the first song you're going to think of? My Way, My way Frank Sinatra. So, he, he puts it great. He, he, if I was to kind of say, could, could someone in culture tell me, uh, give me a good explanation of what we think about my way is, um, or the way is, this is what Frank Sinatra says in his song. He said, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, good, that's good for you. Like, that is good, I promise you. <laughs> He said, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, 
and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. And, and when that song comes on at a wedding or wherever, actually we love to sing along because it's, it's that kind of like big chorus and, like, and it's kind of celebrated. And I think another really good example culturally, and this is especially for us blokes, and if you're, if you're married, you're probably very aware of this as well. If you're driving along in the car, husband's driving, wife's in next year, and you're lost and you don't know where to go, the wife will normally say to husband, oh, why down your window? Just ask that one. Husband's like, no. No. <laughs> the bloke generally doesn't want to ask directions because it's this pride issue. I don't want to be told which way to go. I can sort it out myself. That's what, that's what we're like, unfortunately. Um, you see, we don't like to be, be pinned down to anything. So uh, we, we almost feel like, actually, um, we need to have choice. And we want the freedom to choose because what we do is we see free, um, choice as freedom. That's choice equals freedom. That's kind of the equation we, we make. Ironically, I think actually it could be very the opposite. So our friend Andrew Haslam, he leads a church down in London, he said this. He said, apparently, too much choice is making us unhappy. Stuart Jeffries, writing in The Guardian, describes how we are paralysed by the plethora of options in all areas of life. Whether it's 28 varieties of tomato ketchup or 224 kinds of air freshener, right the way through to the many potential partners on dating sites. We're also very likely to experience anxiety after making a decision for fear we're missing out on something better. When we're given fewer options, like Aldi's one type of tomato ketchup, all of that angst disappears. So we have this kind of context where we want to do things our way because we've got this pride, we don't want to ask someone else for help, we don't want to be told which way to go, we don't want to be told we're wrong, and then we also want this choice, we want to be able to choose which way we go, because that means freedom, and ironically, actually, if you're in the car, you're not asking directions, then you're going to be in the car longer, and your arguments are probably going to get worse, and actually it probably doesn't help, if you're going to be wanting decisions, actually, and all the freedom to make choices, and actually quite likely alongside that, anxiety is going to rise as well. And so in terms of spirituality in our culture, what's generally accepted, the, the general consensus is um, they kind of see God on top of a hill. And if God is real, then he's on top of this hill. And all these different paths all lead up to the same God. They're just looking at him from a different angle. So they say um, all paths lead to, lead to God. They go to the same place as long as you're good. That's generally what culture tells us about the way. You can disagree or you can agree. But that's what I feel. The truth so, what does the culture say about the truth? So Jesus' statement of being the truth jars us because our cultural belief is we create our own truth. We don't, um, we don't like being told what to believe. This is especially true about our beliefs, our feelings, our core values. We do not like people telling us this is what you should believe because we feel actually this is something personal to us. We get told we need to accept everybody. We think we live in an age of tolerance and we have the ability to... Um, hold our own opinions, and we consider this an essential part of our freedom and our human rights. That, that's who we are. Um, Jenny Pollock, she wrote um, a blog on the Think Theology website, and it was titled, Why Preach the Truth in a Post-Truth World? So in 2016, the, you, may, you may know this, every year, Oxford Dictionary, they released the word of the year. 
Um, in 2016, uh, the word was post-truth. Are people familiar with that term? Do you know what it means? No, I, I didn't know until I looked it up. So basically, what post-truth means is objective facts are now less influential in shaping public opinion than that which appear, appeals to emotion and personal belief. So what that basically means, if that doesn't make much sense to you, is in effect, we don't make our, our minds, we follow our hearts. Okay? So we find facts less convincing, less compelling than honesty. And your first response to that might be like, well, that's not true. But actually, when you start to unpick what's going on in, in the news and in politics and in society, you think, mm, maybe there's a point there. Maybe this post-truth uh, post thing is true. So, let's give you an example. So Dara Lind, she wrote an article for Vox, and she titled it, Donald Trump lies all the time, and a stunning number of people don't seem to care. And she says this, even though fact-checkers deploy their forces on Trump regularly, he never apologises or retracts. Calling out his lies doesn't make his supporters any less loyal to him. A substantial number of Americans still find him more honest and trustworthy than Hillary Clinton. This was written in 2016. That might have changed now, but you get the point. Actually, um, there's this thing about Trump where he will say whatever he wants, but because it's almost he feels like he's being real to himself, people like that and think, actually, emotionally, uh, people respond to that. I'm not saying we all love Trump. We do not, but some people might. <laughs> But the Americans obviously voted for him. And so actually appealed, he appealed to what the American voters want. They wanted someone who was real rather than someone who was honest. Do you get what I mean? That's what the post-truth is trying to say. So it doesn't seem to matter whether something is objectively true, so out there is true. Instead, we value subjectively what's inside uh, and whether that's true. So again, in terms of spirituality, what does culture say? Well, culture says, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And that's the general acceptance of what people say, that, that's fine. So, and I, and I, see, this, um, I see this in my workplace. I think um, I, I've got a friend who we regularly have conversations about God, and he, he's very outspoken. Um, but it makes it for a lot of fun. But actually, the general feeling I get from him is... Actually, that, that, that's fine for you to have a faith. That's really good. But actually, that truth is only for you. It's not for me. And he's happy with that. As, 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 long as, I, as soon as I start saying, actually, do you realise Jesus is the truth? Actually, that's suddenly controversial. Uh, that's not accepted. Okay, the life. Jesus' statement of being the life jars us because our cultural belief is doing what we want without restriction brings life. We don't like being told how we should live our lives. Basically, culture says, do what you want that makes you happy, as long as it doesn't hurt others. That, that's what culture says. People don't want to be... The, the response when people says, uh, say, this is how you should be living life, they're like, don't tell me how to live my life. In fact, I had, a, I had an example this week. Um, so in my work, um, I, I'm a social worker, and I work with um, kind of uh, teenagers and families who kind of are starting to fall apart, that sort of thing. Relationships are breaking down. And so I was doing a bit of mediation between parents and their son this week. And, I mean, he's more of the, should we say, the hippie type. So he's that, that sort of uh, um, guy. And when we started talking about, actually, what does it look like for you to move back into your parents? What do you need to accept? As soon as we started to put any boundaries, he was like, whoa, I thought I was coming back and going to be treated like an adult. And it was this reaction to my freedom is suddenly being closed off. And I had to tell him, actually, no, anywhere you go, there's going to be some rules. And he just couldn't accept, actually, his freedom and his choice was being cut off. He wanted to live his own life 
and um, he didn't want anyone to tell him how to live his life. Um, another big cultural phrase at the moment, if you're down with the kids, is YOLO. Um, it stands for You Only Live Once, uh, made famous by the rapper Drake in his, his song The Motto. And what, what I find um, a little bit kind of strange is it's almost like this kind of this thought of YOLO is this brand new thing. Yes, it's given a new word, a new description for it, um, but it's almost like uh, these, the, the generation at the moment are jumping up thinking, yeah, you only live once, let's make the most of it. Actually, this, this kind of phrase, but in a different title, has been around since before Jesus was born. The phrase, carpe diem, basically the Latin, tr usually translated as seize the day, is ri uh, written first by a Roman poet called Horace in 23 BC. So this whole seize the day, you only live once, is kind of the, the theme for um, our culture and what seems like, actually, it's not just our generation, but it's like from generations, seize the day, make the most of life, um, and that's what we're told to do. So in terms of spirituality, the consensus is, if it makes you happy and it doesn't hurt others, you should do it. Again, I find um, an example of this is in my workplace where people come into work and they just say, oh, I've been to see a clairvoyant this week, and, and they talk openly about it, what happened, and it's just accepted. No one, no one says, well, this is weird, don't talk about this in front of me. Actually, if I was to go and say, I went to church Sunday, God came, the uh, Holy Spirit broke out, they'd be like, mm, this, can't, this conversation can't go on here. And that's the, so there's this kind of, actually, if it makes you happy, and um, so the clairvoyants, people who, who kind of go to the kind of clairvoyant uh, for the truth, actually, it's truth for them. They're not saying this is truth for you. And so that's, that's how culture responds to life. Okay, so that's where we're at, we're at right now in culture. Some of that is kind of paramount for how we are right now, but actually, let's go back a bit further and consider, are these just cultural traits for now, or are they from, uh, from years gone by? So, we're going to go right back to the beginning. We're going to be looking at Adam and Eve, Adam's story, and uh, open up Genesis. So, in the quick context, um, most of you will be familiar with some of the story of Genesis. Um, so, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 it's all about God's creation. God is creating the world. He's making this, making that, and saying, that's good, that's good. Then he makes Adam and Eve as like the, the pinnacle of his creation. Adam and Eve are um, the first man and woman, and they're there to, to start families, start the human race, and kind of be God's representatives on earth. And then we get into Genesis chapter 3. And what's happening is, um, in this garden, God creates... Um, a tree, which is, is called it the, the tree um, of knowledge of good and evil. And he said to Adam and Eve, he said, you can do anything in this garden, you can eat from any tree, but that is the one tree you cannot eat of. And, and sometimes you think, well, why did he do that? Why did he even give him that? Actually, that was the one thing he said, look, if you really love me, this is how you can show me that you love me. Um, and so he put that tree there. So, um, one day, Adam and Eve are walking in the garden and and the Genesis chapter 3 says, a serpent um, said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve's response was, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the, tru uh, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, he said back to her, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve, they both ate from the tree, they ate the fruit, and suddenly their eyes were opened. They, they realised they were naked, so they ran and hid. God came along and said, where are you? 
like he didn't know. And uh, he said, ah, I realized I was naked, so I hid. And what we have here is Adam and Eve, in this moment, they were failing to believe that the great I am God, the God of all the universe, that he was the way and the truth and life. And they decided to make their own way, their own truth, and uh, pursue their own life. So, Adam, in failing to believe that Jesus is the way, uh, they instead chose to believe that they could choose their own way. They disobeyed God on the one thing, the one thing God had asked them not to do. So he gave them complete freedom to do whatever they want, to, to enjoy life, to go enjoy the garden. And the one thing he asked them not to do, they did. So, the, again, I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. Ironically, the, um, what they thought was freedom in doing kind of what they wanted to do, it actually stole their freedom. Instead of finding their own way, they ended up running away and hiding. And the very essence of what hiding is implies a lack of freedom. So obviously you've got the physical freedom in the sense of obviously if I'm saying I'm hiding and I'm standing here, that, that is, that's not really hiding, is it? So I couldn't hide here because you can all see me. But if I was to go and like go behind the stage and hide, then suddenly my freedom is gone because I'm limited as to where I can go physically because I need to go and hide away. And so the, the physical freedom was gone. But probably more so than the physical freedom, the, the freedom of enjoyment and, um, and the whole kind of fun of life was suddenly ripped from them because they were created to enjoy God's presence. And suddenly they'd done the one thing that God said not to do and actually it caused a separation um, from God. They had to leave the garden. And so the very freedom that they had under kind of enjoying God's presence was suddenly gone. And quite often the hiding, what, what's in the back of hiding is fear. And fear equals lack of freedom. Fear steals freedom. And so when we, it's that fear of being discovered. So I know, and if any of you got young kids or had young kids, you, you know if you're in a room doing something, the kids are playing just out eye shot, um, and suddenly it all goes quiet, you know something's up. Because they're going quiet because they do not want to be discovered of what they're doing. So whether it's Jonah raiding the chocolates or whether it's Phoebe raiding the mud in the flower pot plant, that's what she does. Um, actually, they go quiet because they know they're doing something they're not meant to do. And it's that kind of, actually, they're suddenly, they lose that freedom to express themselves, to be full of joy, because they, they know they've got to be quiet because they don't want to get caught. So, um, in failing to believe that Jesus is the truth, Adam and Eve, they instead chose to believe that they could choose their own truth. See, what happened when, when the serpent came and spoke to them, he put suspicion of God in their mind. And they didn't trust what God had said. Because ironically, um, what actually happened was when the serpent first came and said, did God really say that? Eve's response was right. She remembered what God had said and she, told, she was able to reflect back exactly what God had said to her. However, the serpent went on and said, no, that's not even right. And he put that suspicion and doubt in, in their mind. And so what they did is when they failed to believe what God had said to them, they replaced it with a, uh, their own truth. And if, you, if you've got a truth and you replace it with something else, that's automatically a lie if it doesn't correlate. And God's truth was, was right. What they believed wasn't a truth at all. It was a lie. And so Roman, in the book of Romans, um, Paul says they exchanged a truth of God for a lie. And that's exactly what they did. They exchanged truth for a lie. 
And the lie that they believed was that they could be their own God, that they could make their own truth. Um, and actually, the Bible clearly says, what well, Jesus clearly says, that he is the truth. And this is what we do ourselves. We do exactly the same. Um, so we'd rather do our own things rather than following God's instructions because we believe that we can do, we can be our own God. We, set our own, we want to set our own rules, we want to do what we want, and we want to create our own truth. But they're all just liars. So we're just like Adam. In failing to believe that he is the life, they instead chose to believe that doing what we want without restriction brings life. So God had told them that they must not eat from this one tree or they will die. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Just eating from a fruit. Why is that, why is that going to cause death? So again, we go back to the book of Romans. Paul says, um, so the wages or the penalty or the result of sin is death. And that, that just sounds a bit over the top, a bit OTT. A, yeah, like I said earlier, just a, a bit harsh. But consider it like this. So if we believe what the Bible says about God, so if we believe that the source of life is God, which we do because the Bible says it, and if sin is turning away from God and living our own life, which it is, then the equation of sin equals death makes sense because we're turning away from the life source and trying to run after our own thing. So suddenly it makes, it, it's more of a almost mathematical explanation rather than just a, a harsh consequence. If you get what I mean? If we, if we believe God is truly the source of life and we're saying, no, we want to live our own thing, then we're turning away from life and, and we're chasing, pursuing death instead. So their desire to have life and live life in a way that pleased them, it actually brought death as they rejected the very source of life. So, we've considered our culture and uh, maybe our culture's indirect response to the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we considered Adam's response um, to God being the way, the truth, and the life. So now let's consider Jesus' claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And see, let's see if he, uh, if he makes any sense for us. Hopefully he will. So, first of all, let's, let's keep it, what's going on in the actual context of when Jesus says this. So, I, I would argue that actually Jesus is first responding directly to Peter and the disciples in the room. So, um, Simon Peter asks Jesus, he says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus' response is, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So as you can see up there, actually, Jesus says three things to Peter, and they're almost like gentle rebukes to him. And, he, and it's almost like quite public. Was Peter's there, he's the lead, almost this leader of this, this group of guys, this, these disciples. Um, leader, I say, after Jesus. Um, and he's almost been, should we say, embarrassed in front of them. Because Jesus is saying, hang on, Pete, you haven't, you haven't quite got it. And I think where Jesus then says, I'm the way and the truth and life, he's responding to these three kind of knockbacks, these three gentle rebukes to Peter and says, actually, Peter, where you ask, where, where, when I said to you where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I'm saying, I am the way, Peter. You can trust me. When he says, will you really lay down your life for me? Almost this like kind of sarcastic question back. He's saying, Peter, 
I am the life. You can put your trust in me. I will give you life. And when he says, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. So he actually tells him, Peter, you're going to go away and you're going to lie. You're going to pretend you don't even know me. But actually, remember, I am the truth. And, and so I feel like there's a, a direct response to Peter um, in, this, in this context. But actually, he's saying it to all the disciples because straight after he says, says this, he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's, it's such a weird scenario because Jesus knows he's going to die the next day. He knows because earlier on in the book of John, he says, I know what's coming. And, and, and uh, again and again through the Gospels, he says, I'm going to go to the cross. And so he knows what's coming. And I can't help but think, if any of us were in a situation where one of our good mates knew they were going to be dying the next day, or I know the disciples didn't necessarily uh, twig that quickly. They weren't quite aware of what was going on. But if you knew you were going to be dying the following day and you were with all your mates the night before, you would be wanting some sympathy from them. You would be wanting to be the one to be consoled and be looked after. He's there and he's still saying, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's the one looking after them. And you think, wow. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. So he's reminding Peter in this situation and the disciples in the room, says not to trust in themselves because that's what Adam did and that led to death, but to trust in him. And it's, on the, and it's on the back of this, he says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. But Jesus is saying something much bigger than trust to Peter and the disciples in the room. He is telling all his disciples, not just those in the room, but those throughout the world, throughout all history. He's saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. You can trust in me to be your way. You can trust in me to be uh, your truth. You can trust in me to be the life. So, how is Jesus the way? Well, throughout the Bible, since the beginning of creation, since the Adam story, God has been showing his people the way to live. Some of the most clearest examples of this are in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are going through the desert. Um, it says God made a, a, a pillar of cloud during the day uh, and a pillar of cloud uh, of fire through the night. And actually, as they were walking through the desert, this cloud went in front of them and kind of showed them the way. So it's a very obvious way that God would show the way. He also spoke through the prophets. So again and again, the, the prophets told um, the people of God actually what God was saying to them. And it was a very clear direction of, actually, this is the way that God is showing you. He spoke in dreams and visions through Joseph, Jacob, Daniel. So God was, God was about showing his people the way. But ultimately, all of Old Testament scripture is pointing to the one way to know the Father, and that was Jesus. You see, every page, every sentence, every word, every letter is there pointing to Jesus. Sometimes in the Old Testament you're reading it and it's harder to see, but other times it's, it's really obvious. But it's, it's pointing to him, saying he is the way. Guys, fix your eyes on him. He is the way. So Jesus is um, now saying that the, the way is not just a direction, it's, uh, it's not just a path to follow to a desired destination. He's saying, actually, the way is a person, and that is him. Jesus Christ is the way. It's, it's, a, it's a person that we can now trust in. He is taking his disciples. Um, he's talking with his disciples in this moment. Um, he goes on to say, after he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he goes on to say, um, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. I'm going to prepare a room. So he says to him, you, um, you know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas says back, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? 
And his response is, I am the way, guys. I am the way to the Father. I am the way to, go to the Father's house. Come through me. He says, if you, he says to them, if you want to know the Father, then come through me. But then he goes on to say, if you know me, you know the Father. So what he's describing here is this deep intimacy, this union of they are one. They're not separate. They are one. He said, me and the Father, we, we are one. There's no separation. I am. The same I am God that spoke to um, Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I am. I am he. And what you find is in the, um, so in the first 14 verses of John chapter 14, if we take out two verses which the disciples speak, but, so that leaves us with 12 verses which Jesus spoke in the, in the, in the start of John chapter 14. In these 12 verses, he says the word Father 19 times. He says, I, sorry, he says Father 13 times. He says, I 19 times. He says, you 17 times. He says, me 12 times. He says, my five times. And he says, son, meaning himself, once. So that's a total of 67 times he uses those words. Father, I, you, me, my son. In 12 verses, that works out an average of 5.1 per verse. So what he's describing here is this, Deep intimacy between him and the Father. They are one, they're close, but he says, actually, you can come in as well. You're called into this union. You can be in this union with the great I am. And it's just this wonderful, this like explosion of the Father, that it's me and it's you in as well. He says, guys, I am the way into this union and you can be a part of it. So, and that's, that's what the, the God we believe in is the Trinitarian God. The God is free, but the God is one. And they are a loving union from the beginning of creation. They were, they were there in this union of love. And the love was just overflowing. And that's why they created the, uh, all the universe. They, that's why they created man and woman. Because there was this overflow of love and they wanted to express this love. So if you get a marriage, and actually quite often in the marriage, people want to have kids because it's this overflow of love for each other. And they wanted to, this love to, to, to be expressed even, even more. And so that's what's going on in creation. You've got this Trinitarian God, this union of love, and they create humans to say, come into this union. And this is what Jesus is saying here. For all of us, the way has been opened, and it's through him to come into this union. We are welcomed in when we recognise that Jesus is the way. He is also the truth. And again, truth isn't a principle, it's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So it's not a principle, it's a person. And recognising that Jesus is the truth changes everything for us. So, firstly, um, in a culture that says there's no such thing as absolute truth, we say there is an absolute truth. And that absolute truth is Jesus. And so what happens with absolute truth is no matter what happens in your life, no matter what circumstances come your way, no matter what new discoveries are made, the truth remains the same. And that's what's great about um, absolute truth. And when it's, when it's in Jesus, we know that actually the Bible describes it as an anchor. And so we, we can be in Jesus and the anchor is there in the, in the storm, in the seas. And what happens with the anchor is it holds the boat still. So the boat doesn't go swaying off everywhere. And if you, if you don't have the anchor in the absolute truth, then as soon as a new discovery comes along, then you go off with it. If as soon as something happens in your life, then, then you get taken off with that. But when your anchor is in the absolute truth of Jesus Christ, then you know you're not moving, you know you're not swaying. And that's what's great about absolute truth. So in this post-truth culture that says we can't have, that says that truth that doesn't matter, actually we say we've got something that doesn't change regardless of what culture is telling us. Secondly, we believe that Jesus 
is God and part of the Trinity, like I was saying just a second ago, the author of this gospel we're reading, John, he starts off the very start of his book, the introduction to this Jesus, describing Jesus as the Word of God. So he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we can translate as, In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So this is how he starts off his book. And so what we can interpret from this is, actually we can trust scripture as the word of God because Jesus did, and he quoted it again and again and again as being truth. So Jesus is saying that he is the living word of God, he is the truth, and that what he says and thinks is throughout scripture and we can trust it. So Psalm 1 says, but those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night, so that's who meditate on scripture day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. So it's this wonderful picture and imagery of those who root themselves in, in the truth of God, the word of God. Actually, they will flourish like a, a tree next to a river and produce good fruit. Okay, he is the life. No one likes death, normally. It's normally seen as a subject um, of conversation to generally avoid. Many fear death, and many of those who don't say they, f- they fear death, they do it because it makes it easier, because they don't have to then necessarily um, think about what goes beyond life. But Jesus is saying that the, the source of all life is found in him. So life isn't a thing that you just do. Life is a person. Life is Jesus Christ. So when we, when we come to understand that Jesus is, is the life, we can respond like Paul does in Corinthians, where he says, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Suddenly, the whole fear of death is gone, because actually we know life is found in Jesus. And actually, when we come into a relationship with Jesus and recognise him as a life, then actually eternal life starts at that moment. And we know that although our physical uh, bodies might die, actually we know in eternity we, we will live forever. And that's the, the freedom of uh, having Jesus as our life. So Jesus' life is a hope for us all in this world. Um, where there's so much darkness. So John has a lot to say in, uh, in his book about Jesus being the life. So again, back in the first chapter of John, he goes on to say, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And that's reflected in Psalm 36, where it says, you are the giver of life, your light lets us enjoy life. So this dark world, actually Jesus is this, and I'm the life, and it's like this light in this darkness that we can look to and, and find hope. Again, in the the I am statements, so um, we'll we'll be going through um, a few more in the next couple of weeks. Um, So, uh, I mean, these are no surprises. You can read them in the Bible, so I'm not spoiling anything. But he goes on to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. So he says the life again. He emphasizes it a second time. He also says, I'm the gate. And on the back of that, he says, the thief comes only to still kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. So life in Jesus brings us two things. One, right now, it brings us life to the full. We can experience this physical life to the full in all that it wasn't meant to be, in all that God had intended. But then also later on, when our physical bodies perish and pass away, actually, we don't have to fear death because eternal life is promised. So, to clarify, Jesus is the way to God. Okay? Jesus is the truth of God. And through Jesus, we have life in God. 
There is no other way into the very presence of God than through Jesus. He says this very clearly. And by accepting Jesus' death as the, the full payment of our sins before God the Father, actually we can come into relationship with the Father. We can, Jesus will go ahead and prepare us a room in his Father's house. So this very same Peter that Jesus is speaking to um, in this book of John, he says here in the book of Acts, Peter says this, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only remedy before God for our sin problem, and we all have a sin problem. But he says he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He is the only way to eternal life. And this is the truth of God's word. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.